Hi friends, welcome to Reframing Neurodiversity. I'm your host, Melissa Jackson, and I'm here to tell you it's time to see neurodivergence for what it truly is, a gift that benefits us all. As a former teacher, mom to two neurodivergent kids, and as a neurodivergent person myself, I know it's possible to see your neurowiring in a new way. That's why I'm on a mission to reframe the way we view neurodivergence as a collective and to empower us as neurodivergent adults and parents with the language and tools to advocate for ourselves and our kids. Join me each week as my guests and I share our personal experiences paired with cutting edge research, leaving you feeling seen, validated, and proud of the way your brain works. Ready to get started? Let's dive into today's episode. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Reframing Neurodiversity Podcast. I am your host, Melissa Jackson. And if you are tuning in today, you are in for a treat. We have a very special guest with us, Ana Lorena Fabrega, who is an entrepreneur, writer, chief evangelist at Synthesis, and most recently, the author of the amazing book, The Learning Game. Thank you so much for being here, Ana. Oh, Melissa, thank you for that warm intro. I'm very excited to chat. I have to tell you, I'm semi-obsessed with your book. <laughs> As a former teacher myself, I feel like you are in my head, taking all the thoughts and feelings of all the years and just putting them so beautifully onto the page. I know for me as an educator and as a neurodivergent person and parent to neurodivergent children, I have felt very disenchanted with the school system from a professional perspective, from a personal perspective. And I love how you just so succinctly break it down on like, here's why we are where we are mm -hmm. and here's what needs to shift. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me from your perspective, why did you feel like you needed to exit the school system and speak out about necessary change? Yeah. So very much like you, I, I was very passionate about working with children. I loved teaching. I loved learning from my students. But I became very worried when I started to notice a lot of inconsistencies within the system and, and the, the whole structure and the way that we've set up this environment that is quote unquote supposed to be conductive for teaching and learning. But in reality, I feel like it does pretty much the opposite of what we know about kids and how they develop and what they need in order to thrive and learn. And so starting with the fact that, you know, school sort of puts everyone into this path that it's the same. And even though, yes, there's some tweaks that you do here and there, the expectations are pretty much for one type of student. And so if you're not that kind of student, then succeeding in this environment is really, really difficult. And I started to see so many kids, so many kids fall through the cracks and get mislabels or, you know, self-fulfilling prophecies that they're not good at this because that's what they've been told. And they've been put in all this remediation groups. And, and in reality, it was like, well, that's because we're really focusing on trying to fix all their weaknesses, right? Because they maybe don't really fit in the system instead of really finding what the things, what are the, those things that they're really good at and then doubling down on those strengths, right? And so I felt like so many kids were just, again, we were setting them up for failure and it didn't feel right. I just felt like it was really difficult to do the things that we're hired to do, right? So, which is set up kids for success and, and sort of um, nurture that natural curiosity and desire to learn. It's very difficult in this environments that again, go against everything we know about kids and how they learn. So 
it got to a point where um, I, I decided to exit the system and I discovered the alternative education world. And it turns out that there are a lot of different paths and alternatives and things that work for every kid. There are things that you can as a parent do in order to sort of nourish all this other side that's not getting you know nourished in school. And so I became really passionate about that. I started writing about it. And a lot of this ideas got turned into my first book, which is The Learning Game. And, and I try to talk about this, right, to sort of empower parents and to realize that there's so much we can do um, to help our kids and to find the way that that suits each and every kid that we have. I love this. And you know, what really had stood out for me as a reader of this book was how much you're speaking to the neurodivergent experience, which I know you never say that word in the book. Mm -hmm. But what I love about the way you frame this is it's really so equitable, because it's not about what you're neurowiring in. Mm -hmm. It's about what is just good teaching for all students. Because mm -hmm. what I know is that in the work that I do, what's good for neurodivergent students is good for all kids. And mm -hmm. so there's this missing piece of school that if you're kind of that lucky few that maybe it works for, great. But there's so many children who are feeling disengaged and like they're just going through the motions and like you said, slipping through the cracks. But the system is so big that I think so often families feel like what can we do? You know, mm -hmm. it's like this uphill battle because the system has been put in place. So even teachers and parents are kind of limited. So I'm very curious your perspective on what are these alternatives that parents can do when they find themselves in these situations where the traditional setting just isn't working. Yeah. So I think that the first step is taking a step back and, and questioning, right? So when they tell you, you know, there's something wrong with your kid, or when you observe that, you know, your kid is not necessarily thriving in this environment that you have them on, or when they come home and they're not really excited to keep on learning, or they don't want to go back to school, or you ask them, you know, what are you learning? Tell me a little bit more. And, and, and it's pretty like short one-liners. And, you know, those are all kind of red flags that, that mean that something is going on and something's not working. And so the first step is sort of realizing that. Um, the second step, I think is sort of going back and questioning like why are we here like how did we end up here because a lot of people with the best intentions right just blindly trust the education system why because it's been around for so long because it's what you know we did as parents and maybe worked for us or maybe it didn't but we haven't quite stopped to reflect about our own school experience and mm -hmm. if, if it could have been better or if it actually was the optimal environment for us to thrive in and um, we, we rarely stop to sort of reflect in this right and question this mm -hmm. and when you start digging into the history of the education system and actually the data behind a lot of these practices that we've been carrying along for so many years, you start to realize that a lot of them are either very outdated or they just plainly never worked and we just continue to blindly trust them. And so I think that um, by educating yourself and, you know, unlearning, which is a word that I use a lot in my book, a lot of this unhelpful lessons that we learned in school is one of the first big steps because that way you can actually help your kid at home unlearn a lot of this unhealthy habits that they're getting reinforced in school, right? We talk a lot about academics and academically, how's your kid doing academically? Academically, but what about 
all the soft skills that we actually know that they're going to need in order to thrive, for example, um, how to get comfortable with failure, because failure is something yeah. that we know that will come our way one way or another. And how do you do that? Well, through constant practice. And if you look in a traditional school setting environment, kids rarely have time to practice failing constructively when the stakes are low, right? And without getting that like bad grade that right. you know makes them not want to take risks. And so these are like, like the, the kind of soft skills that I often talk about that we need to be helping our kids with. And, and I think the schools are sort of doing the opposite, right? Because what often I noticed as a teacher, and I'm sure you did too, was that these things that we were reinforcing at home and then, you know, it didn't feel good, but I had to give this kid like, you know, this bad grade. When I actually deep inside felt like they knew the material, they were just maybe not good test takers. And then this kid goes home with the bad grade and parents, again, are so conditioned and used to just believing everything that the school tells you. So they punish them again, or, you know, they're like, oh, you didn't get a good grade and they make them feel bad about it. When in reality, as parents, we should be like more inquisitive and and, and approach this with curiosity and say, okay, did they get a bad grade because they, they don't know the material? Is it a big deal? And if it is, then is there another way that they can showcase this? So it's like all about, again, asking questions questions and approaching everything through the lens of curiosity. And then I think it all boils down to you being the perfect enabler for your child. Because again, in school, they're telling them, this is how you're going to be successful. This is the path. This is what you need to do here. Are the careers, da, da, da. But what if your kid doesn't fit in that path, right? right? It's your job as a parent to help them pave that new path that's more suitable for them. And these are some like general things that I'm talking about. They're not quite like as tactical as practical, but in the book, as you you probably know, I do give very specific things that you can do that go again in this realm of things that I'm talking about. Yes, no, you definitely do. But what I love about what you're saying is it really does start with the shift in mindset as parents, right? Questioning the default, questioning these messages we've all been served about. Here's the right way to do school. Here's the right mm -hmm. way to learn. And it's like, Stepping back and really looking at, you speak about this in your book as well, like the goal of school, looking at it, what is the goal of school? And this, the mm -hmm. system that we've developed was really based on a time and a period in history that isn't relevant to today, mm -hmm. you know, so we don't have the same goals. The skills we need today are these more divergent thinking skills that are more mm -hmm. creative and innovative and allow mm -hmm. for opportunities to make mistakes and to learn mm -hmm. from our mistakes. The system we have today really makes failure something to run away from rather than seeing it as an opportunity to learn. Mm -hmm. I know this in my own parenting, it's allowed me to be like, just much more relaxed. Like mm -hmm. I know what matters and what doesn't. Giving them permission to be like, so maybe you're dyslexic and spelling is really hard for you. And you know what? You have great creative ideas. I don't care about your spelling tests. Let's get those creative ideas out on paper and let's find ways to build confidence in the things that you're good at. Oh, I, I, I actually love that last example you gave. And I want to give a quick personal story. Um, you know, the way that I was taught how to write and the way that I was, you know, taught how to teach kids how to write was the very traditional way, right? It's like focusing on, again, the grammar, the mechanic, the spelling test and this and that. And I hated writing growing up all my life and I hated teaching writing. And I would notice a very similar attitude in most of my students. They loved creative writing on Fridays when they just got to open their journal and write about whatever. And I wouldn't check their spelling and I would, but they did not like the actual writing course. And so it's funny because I ended up now that this is what I do for a living. Now I write and yes, I ended up even but... writing a book who would have told, and you know what happened when I left the traditional school system, I actually enrolled in this 
writing class online that helped me unlearn all these things that I've been told for years about writing and how we have to do it and focusing on all those rules and the mechanics and the grammar and this and that. And when you remove all those, you know, rules and everything from the equation and you focus on the things that kids are already excited about, which is the ideas and you, and that's, the most important part about writing, right? And you focus on that and you let them elaborate. That's what I did. I focused on my ideas and then eventually the computer would catch on the grammar. You know, English is my third language. So of course, sometimes, yeah. you know, things wouldn't sound right. Or, you know, after reading it a few times after this, like I would start switching things around, but I would already dump all my ideas in paper. They were already there. I would start from abundance instead of from scarcity, which is the way that we've been taught how to write. Like you sit in front of a blank piece of paper and here's the prompt. What if I'm not interested in that prompt? And so I started to realize that that choice is the most important element about writing and about really pretty much everything, right? In teaching and learning choice, like giving kids the ability to make decisions over what they want to write about. Who are they writing this for? And it goes back to this idea of not only giving them choice, but highlighting the relevance of what we're asking them to do. So if we if we want kids to learn anything, one, they need to be curious about it. And two, they need to understand why they're learning this. And it goes back to what you were saying, like, What's the purpose of this? I would often get this question from students. Why am I learning this? Why am I doing this? And I would so many times be frustrated because I'm like, I have no idea. I don't know oh, yeah, why I don't I'm teaching know. you this. I yeah. still haven't used it. I'm an adult yeah. and I don't know right. when I'm going to use this. So we keep teaching kids just in case. And that's not enough for things to be exciting and for things to stick. And so going back to writing, um, when you focus on the things that really matter and the things that kids are already excited about, and then you trust that the rest will come into place once they need it, right? And so when I realized that, everything changed for me. And I was like, wow, imagine if I had taught writing like this in school. It just really made me realize how we need to rethink, you know, the methods and the practices that we're using and how much choice and ownership and autonomy we're giving kids. And if we're focusing on the right things, right? And if we're not, then it's time to pivot and it's time to make some changes. 100%. And I hear you saying like, it's this flip-flop. It's like if we can allow kids to feel invested and excited and engaged in something that's meaningful and interesting to them, then those skills that maybe aren't as interesting are going to come, but they're going to be easier to do because we're already invested and we care about what we're writing about. I mean, mm -hmm. like you, I'm actually dyslexic and have ADHD and I'm a writer now, but it's because mm -hmm. I don't care if I just get all my stuff out and it doesn't look pretty. I know mm -hmm. I've got Grammarly and all the tools I need to later mm -hmm. clean it all up for me, you know, exactly. but I, I recognize that I have unique creative ideas, but when you're a child and you're in a system where the gateway to those ideas are maybe something that's really hard and interesting and boring. We're really limiting opportunities for kids to experience success and even maybe engage in things that potentially could be of high interest to them, but it's not presented in a way that is, is accessible. Now that you mentioned the ADHD and this topic that, you know, I was also diagnosed with ADHD and was on medicine for so many years. And then I realized, you know, as an adult, I think that I have a lot of energy that was not channeled correctly as a kid. I think that I was not in the right environment. If you think about it, what do we know about kids and how they develop? We know that kids need so much movement. They need to be moving until they're exhausted. That's how their brains can 
kick into gear. That's how they're ready to learn. That's how their bodies develop, right? Like they need that. And if you look at what we're doing in traditional setting environments, we're putting them since, you know, 7 a.m. in the morning until 3 p.m. sitting down. We don't allow them to move. We don't allow them to fidget. They get in trouble when in reality, they're telling us that they're not in the right environment. They need to be releasing way more energy than just, you know, a 20 minute recess and an hour of physical education, if anything, a day. Like, no, they should be spending the majority of their time moving. And so if you look at, you know, alternative schools, many of them, like in Finland, they don't have desks. Like kids are up and down and moving and on the floor and jumping and walking. Like, you know, have you seen forest schools? I think that concept is genius, right? You have kids outdoors moving and playing and learning from nature. And yes, you have times where you sit down and you talk about this and you read books and you learn math, but they're outdoors doing what kids are supposed to be doing, which is moving until they're exhausted. So, you know, I'm very frustrated because I feel like by putting them in this restrictive environments where they're not allowed to talk, they're not allowed to move, they get in trouble. They, we make them feel bad for all these things. It's like, well, the problem's obviously going to get worse, right? Yeah. And again, I know that there are schools that are doing modifications and that they have this movement break and they have all, all these things, but but I still feel like it's not enough. I think that we need to sort of rethink the way that we are grouping kids and, and, and trying to get them to learn. And so I just feel like if we were a bit more open-minded, and we actually got to the root of the problem, instead of trying to fit these kids into the mold, create a different system and see where kids fit best. And so I think every kid would benefit from that. 100%. And because I think everything that you're saying in your book and today is beneficial for everyone, but there's certain neuro wirings where their experience is really not going to be aligned with our traditional system where you have to sit all day. You don't get much movement. You don't get much choice. You don't get to pick what you're interested in. You don't get time outside. And so their symptoms look like ADHD, right? Mm -hmm. And I talk about this a lot that I have a lot of issue with our deficit language, calling mm -hmm. kids disordered or disabled or having, you know, it's in the, it's in the attention deficit disorder. It's got two negatives in the title and we're telling people, here's what you have rather than looking at the strengths that exist in this mm -hmm. neuro wiring. And maybe the environments we're finding ourselves in are making us feel disabled. You mm -hmm. know, I think that's the shift. It's like, is the environment conducive for learning and the way that you think and and the way that you thrive. And mm -hmm. maybe that's where the attention needs to go and less on fixing people to fit into an environment when we really question it isn't working for anyone. <laughs> you know? I, I absolutely love that. Imagine if the message that I had gotten as a child because what I would get from parents, from teachers and from doctors was, you're disruptive, you're yeah. impulsive, you talk too much, you have too much energy. And, and everything was like, that's bad, that's bad, that's bad. You need to be less like that. If you take this medicine, like you're going to be calm, you're going to let people talk, you're not going to be disruptive, you're not going to do a thing, anything crazy. When in reality, when I realize as an adult, I'm like, oh my God, all these things that I was told for so many years that were, you know, negative and 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 wrong with me are actually my strengths. Like I was able to channel all that excessive energy that I have, yes, and that passion and zest for life that may look disruptive in a, in a traditional setting environment for what I do now. Like I love talking to people. I love expressing these things. I, all my creative ideas, I get to write about them. I get to talk for hours on podcasts, like all these things that I was told that were wrong with me are actually my strengths. Imagine if that's the message that I would have gotten as a kid over and over again, you know, but 
I feel like so many kids never get that opportunity and they just grow up believing that, again, there's something wrong with them, that this and that. When when If you actually look at a lot of the people, you know, entrepreneurs and people that have, that have you know, created incredible things for humanity, they were all ADHD. And so um, there's obviously something really powerful to to this people. And, and so it's a, it's a matter of focusing on that instead of like trying to remediate them and try to, again, try to fit them into a system where they clearly don't thrive in. And so I love that that you shared. I love that. Yeah. And I noticed in your book, so many of the examples you shared of successful innovators and contributors, you know, Elon Musk, Steve Jobs, like all these Mm -hmm. people who've made significant contributions are actually neurodivergent because what you're saying, the strengths that we squelch in school and, and slap labels on people as defective are actually attributes of their neurowiring that are gifts that when fostered, are amazing. And look at you, you're a perfect example of that, you know? So I think it's this real mindset shift around, you know, how do we frame these things? Are these things Mm -hmm. actually flaws or are they actually talents that Mm -hmm. in the right environment can potentially be significant contributions to all of us? So let's Mm -hmm. look at this differently. Mm -hmm. And I think that it starts with, again, parents, (laughs) Um, because- Teachers, unfortunately, they don't have sometimes opportunity to actually be like, okay, this is what I'm going to, but you as a parent can say, okay, my kid is not, you know, really finding their strengths in school. It is my job at home to make sure to build their confidence that's been squashed in school and make them realize all the things that they're actually amazing at and finding, again, the resources, the space, the environment and the peers that are going to let them take those strengths into productive interests and, 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 and take them very far. And I think that that's the job of parents. And for that, we can't believe everything we hear from the, the traditional school environment. Absolutely. Yeah. Because if a child is receiving, you know, a poor grade on an exam and when they come home, it's reframed, like mm-hmm. it's okay. You know, that doesn't really measure the way your intelligence or the way you think, and you're so good at these things and let's go do these things you're really great at. And you're providing those opportunities a child can balance out, right? Like they can filter out some of the messaging and maybe find, oh yeah, I am good at these things. And I'm not going to put so much weight on the grades, which are a whole nother conversation that I think sort Mm -hmm. of is an issue. I don't know how you feel about it, but with, you know, supporting kids and taking risks and being creative and putting themselves out there because there's a bit of a fear around failing. Absolutely. Um, there's this quote that I have in my book that that I love that it, it's some principal said it. Unfortunately, it's anonymous, so I, I can't attribute it specifically, but it says among the students who will be sitting for the exams is an artist who doesn't need to understand math. There's an entrepreneur who doesn't care about history or English literature. There's a musician whose chemistry marks won't matter. And, you know, that quote just really resonated with me because it goes along everything we've been talking about. And I think that, you know, more parents need to sort of hear this and and hopefully it would help them realize like, yes, you know, maybe that's my kid. So I'm going to stop sort of like doubling down on those things that maybe don't matter as much and then double down on the things that actually do. Right. Absolutely. I love that quote too. And it's like, in the real world, we don't have to be good at everything. Mm -hmm. You know, we are able to double down on those things that we're strong in and we're interested in. And that's kind of how it's supposed to be. We all Mm -hmm. have these unique gifts and these unique ways we're ultimately supposed to contribute. So what if we gave more space and airtime to that and Mm -hmm. allowed children to feel good about themselves because they're investing deeply in what they're good at and they care about? Mm -hmm. Okay, so for the parents who cannot 
pull their kids out of school, who are dissatisfied with the system, who ultimately feel that it's not working for their family. I hear you saying that getting curious about the kid in front of you and really giving space and time to their strengths, their interests, giving them flexibility. Would you say that's the foundation moving forward, the big takeaways that parents can apply to their lives when they find themselves in this position? Yeah. um, And I think that also giving kids sort of a sampling period to try different things outside of school and giving them the opportunity to quit the ones that that don't feel right so that they, you know, they want to continue trying things until they find something. Cause again, sometimes they're not getting opportunities to, to, to try different things in school. So they don't really know. Cause some parents are like, well, Anna, but my kid doesn't know what they're good at. And I don't really know what they're good at. Every kid is good at something, but sometimes they don't have the opportunity to, to get a taste of that in school. So giving them sort of an, an opportunity to try to a, a range of different activities or different things or taking them to different places until you sort of see what's that thing that that awes them, right? That they're like, oh, and even if you're like, well, I don't know where they would take this. Like my kid is obsessed with, you know, video games. Like what are they going to do with that in the real world? I'm like, well, you know, the video game industry is a multi-billion dollar industry that has so many different, you know, jobs that they could potentially have. So that's what they're obsessed with. If that's their productive interest, then go ahead and nurture that. And that's okay. And as you mentioned gaming, that was another section of your book I found really fascinating because I think so many of us have this negative association with gaming And you really put this in a reframe on the positive attributes of gaming and how there's a reason children are so enticed and engaged, and maybe there's something they're receiving online that might be missing in the classroom. Absolutely. So so it is surprising for people when I talk about this, especially because I've never been a gamer myself. I've just never been really that interested in it until I became a teacher. And I started to notice first the amount of kids nowadays that play video games. And, and I was like, okay, let me approach this with curiosity instead of judgment. What is it about video games that they're so drawn to? Like, why is it that I'm having such a hard time getting them engaged in my lessons that I stay until 8 p.m. trying to make super fun and this and that. But then they play this video game and they can play for hours, yeah. right? Or or what is it about video games that they can fail over and over and over again, and they don't get discouraged. They're like, "Uh, okay, let me try again. Or they get frustrated, but they keep going until they pass to the next level. I was like, wow, there's something really powerful about this. They're like the ultimate learning machines, right? Because kids will stick to things until they get them. We don't see that in school. So I became really curious, like, what is it about video games and video game designers that we as educators and parents can learn and bring into the learning environment, right? Um, But one of the things that I discovered as I was doing this research was that humans need three things in order to be healthy and happy in the real world, right? We, We need to feel autonomy, which we've talked about. We need to feel competence. We need to feel like we're good at something and we can improve at things. And we need to feel like we connect with other individuals. So that's relatedness, right? And so suddenly they go home and they get to go online and they get to choose, you know, what games they play, what characters they want to do, how are they going to dress their characters, you know, what levels they want to play and and who they want to play with and all these things. So they suddenly have an opportunity to make all these choices that they don't have in school or during the majority of their day, right? So no wonder they're going to be drawn to these devices. Then we go on to the competency and they're playing these video games where they don't get penalized for failing. I mean, they do, but they get to try again as many times as they want, right? And so they get to keep going, keep going, keep going, learning from their mistakes until they finally achieve whatever it is that they want want to do. 
And so they're feeling this sense of, oh my God, I'm really good at this. If I keep going, I get to improve at this. So again, they're getting this need fulfilled that they're not getting in the real world. And then the related net component, right? And so suddenly online, they get to interact with kids from all over the world, kids that are older, kids that are younger, maybe all other adults, and they get to sort of connect with people that have more similar interests or that, you know, that are more like-minded and less conventionally minded. And so no wonder they're drawn to these spaces, right? And so that was one of the first things that I was like, wow, this is fascinating. So if parents understood this, then they can, you know, the first step is approaching this with, okay, let me find out what my kid is missing in the real world that they're getting online. And how can I bridge that gap? What can I find in the real world that fulfills? Is it the competency component? Is it the relatedness? Is it the, you know, the, the autonomy? They're not getting enough choices. And these are all fixable things that the moment you realize as a parent, you can do something about it. And so if you help them realize these things and bring them to consciousness, and then you're like, okay, how could you actually apply? That's so cool that you learned that how could you apply that in the real world and so you help them all these things that they're learning which i would argue they're learning a lot when they're playing video games you can actually translate them to the real world with your help because the whole point of everything right we do in school and we do at home as parents as educators is once we're not there, we want for our kids to be able to do them themselves. Oh, absolutely. And I've got so many things I want to respond about this. But what I ultimately hear you saying it's like this intentionality too. And it comes back to the original thing we talked about at the beginning about why are we doing what we're doing? Just like, what is the goal of school? Why are we playing the video game? And getting curious, are we playing it because we're genuinely interested in this thing that's benefiting us? Or are we using it as a tool to maybe distract ourselves or, you know, and differentiating between the why behind it and then moving from that place and setting the boundaries and getting curious. And rather than reacting to it as a negative, honoring what it's doing well and, and looking for what are the pieces about it that are working and how can we apply that maybe to other areas? That's what I love so much about the work that you do is, is you're, you're so curious to like, okay, let's not just immediately reject something. Let's look at why are people so fascinated by this? Why are they okay with failing and trying again? And what is the component there that we can apply over here and bring into their academic world into other areas of their lives? And so I just appreciate you so much and the conversation that you bring. It's encouraging people to get curious, which it sounds so simple, but it's really an action, right? Getting curious and deciding to look at things in a new way and rather than immediately reacting, we're actually allowing a different way to exist. And I feel like the work that you're doing and this book that you brought to the world really gives parents permission and teachers to look at things differently. And so mm -hmm. I just, I'm so thankful you came on here today, Anna, and shared your wisdom. I know you have some offers available that might be supportive for parents who are in a position who need some help. And also, of course, how do people get access to your amazing book? Because there's so much more in here. I could talk to you all day. There's so many things in this book that I just feel like everyone needs to have it. So let us know how they get it. So I'm part of this startup called Synthesis, um, which 
touches upon and teaches kids the things that we argue that they're not learning in the traditional school system that we talked about today, all the soft skills of collaboration and learning how to fail constructively and making decisions and understanding trade-offs and all these things that they're going to need in the real world. They get to learn through this fun simulations where they it's all online and they get to play with kids from all over the world, different ages. And this year we added a second component because just like we're targeting the soft skills, we also want to target the hardcore academics. So we came out with this digital tutor. We, we started with math. That's the first topic that we have right now. And we grabbed the best teacher that we considered in math, um, Dr. James Tanton, PhD from Princeton. So not only is he an expert in the subject, but he's also a phenomenal educator, two different things. He understands the art of teaching. And so we captured after recording him for hours and hours and hours, all the, the way he gives feedback, how he talks to kids and the jokes and the stories and all these elements that make it feel very like a human. And we captured all in this AI tutor that's infinitely patient. It will stay with you until you've mastered the material in a fun way, in a way that's logical, where kids get to see the practical application of what they're learning in math right away. And today we're offering um, a special offer for the people that are listening to this podcast. And then it, when it comes to my book, you can find it anywhere where you buy books online and Amazon, Barnes Noble, Thrift Books, or in bookstores around the U.S., um, and if you want to follow my content, I send a newsletter on Fridays called Fab Friday. And you can find me on Twitter or X at Anna Fabrega 11 or Instagram Ms. Fab underscore learning lab. So many great things. Okay. And for listeners, if you want to take advantage of Anna's offer for monthly, annual, or lifetime tutoring plans through Synthesis, you can use our code NeuroDiversity for 10% off. And we'll link that in the show notes for easy access to everyone. Thank you so much, Anna. This was such a pleasure and I look forward to hearing more from you as the years continue. I feel like you just have such a gift for bringing this new way of thinking to the world. So thank you. Thank you so much, Melissa, for having me. Likewise, and I really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks so much for tuning into today's episode. Remember to subscribe and review so you don't miss a thing. Is your child struggling to thrive in their current classroom setting? then you need to head to the show notes to snag my free shareable pamphlet for your child's teacher. It breaks down how to create equitable learning environments for all students based on the leading research in the field of neurodiversity. Because what benefits neurodivergent students benefits all kids.